Welcome to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Callie O'Connor. I've gone from career burnout to taking multiple career breaks, scoring several remote jobs, and even starting my own business while traveling to over 80 countries. The one thing that held me back from starting sooner was that I didn't believe it was possible for me. I wasn't aware that travel could become part of my lifestyle. Through this podcast, I'm so excited to share with you the travel possibilities that are out there for you. In season four, we're talking all about inspirational travel stories. Let's get started. It has been a minute, but I'm so excited to be back with another episode of the Travel Possibilities podcast after a little summer vacation. So I'm back with an interview on what I believe is a required topic if you are a traveler of any kind. First, I will introduce my guest today, and then I'll give a little preface on this episode. So my guest today is Maliha from Maliha Around the World, and she is a dynamic Bangladeshi adventurer who has traveled to 100 countries, being only the third woman to reach this milestone with a Bangladeshi passport. Maliha is on a quest to visit all 197 countries and decolonize travel in the process by sharing perspectives, stories, and narratives to places she visits, which accurately depict the reality of the people of the land. She has an avid following on her blog and Instagram, through which she promotes her brand of ethical traveling, focusing on wellness, inclusion, decolonization, and sustainability. Now, I was really excited to have this conversation with Maliha because she can bring the perspective of a traveler without passport privilege. She shared her experiences and situations she's faced as a traveler that many of us with strong passports would never even consider happening while she's still able to recognize her own travel privilege. We discussed the topic of decolonizing travel and what that actually means. But the point I want to drive home about this episode, because I know it can be a confronting topic, is not that there's a right and a wrong way to be traveling. But if we all took a moment to consider the impact of our own individual travels and made a concerted effort to do a little bit better, that could bode really well for the future of travel. So I encourage you to listen to this episode with open ears, and I challenge you to assess your own travel style and identify one area you could do better next time. This episode isn't about comparing how everyone travels, like they're doing a good job, they're doing a bad job, but it's really about comparing your own travels against yourself and doing better each time. So bringing awareness to this topic allows us to all be more informed and consequently make more informed decisions around how we travel in the future. And that's a win-win if you ask me. Before we dive in, this season's episodes will come to you uninterrupted and ad-free. I know that you'll be inspired by the stories you hear this season And if you need help taking the leap yourself, I encourage you to check out the resources listed in the show notes or visit my website, www.travelshifters.com. Whether you are seeking a remote job, a career break, or pursuing a different travel possibility, there are resources and services for every budget, including free. If you have any questions, my DMs are always open at the Travel Shifters. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. We've had a bit of a summer break and we're back and I'm so excited because today's episode is so good. I have an awesome guest, Maliha. Thanks for being here. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Callie. I'm really excited. Uh, So to your listeners, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Maliha. I am a Bangladeshi travel writer who's been to 100 countries with what is routinely ranked one of the 10 worst passports in the world, the Bangladeshi passport. I am currently based in Berlin, Germany, and I have a career in humanitarian and development work, and I've lived in 11 different countries across three different continents. So that's a little bit to say. That's so exciting. And so that gives us a lot to unpack in this episode. (laughs) So to get started, what got you to this point? How did you become so interested in travel to the point you've already traveled to 100 countries? Well, you know, my story, I, I mean, I've told this story so many times, and I love it telling it. The first time I was on a plane, I was four years old. And 
I went with my parents on this long haul flight to the UK. And uh, I mean, it was a longer trip. My parents had saved everything they had. So we were going to go to the UK, we were going to go to uh, Paris, to Amsterdam, and then to the US as well. So big, big trip, several months long. And I remember being in that plane to this day with such like vivid images of being in this plane, looking out of the window and thinking, oh my God, I'm literally flying through the clouds. Like imagine a four-year-old girl who's like, oh my God, literally, this is the most amazing thing. I can't believe it. I see birds flying and now I'm one of them. I'm higher than the birds. It's so cool. So we got on this flight and we went and saw all these amazing things, which is completely different from anything I'd ever seen before. Different languages, different cultures, different architecture. People looked so different. That was the first time I saw white people. And then also the first time I saw black people when I got to the US, because it was not that much in Europe at that point anyway. And so I was just like, oh my God, people have different colors, different eyes, different hair. Everything was new and exciting. And that high that I felt, you know, of experiencing everything new for the first time, to this day, I continue to chase that. And that's what's taken me. I love that. That's so cool. And I love that you were four years old, because sometimes you hear people being like, oh, the kids are too young. But like this actually shaped your entire life. And the way you just described it is so vivid and vivacious. Thank you. I don't think there's I mean, okay, maybe if you're a toddler, that's not a good idea. But anything older than that, like I learned maybe three sentences of French when I went to Paris at at four years old. And I remembered it till I took French lessons when I was uh, 16. So kids are like, I don't know, they pick up they're like magnets, we pick up everything when we're kids. And every child should have the opportunity to do that to be able to absorb everything that's new and exciting and to love things being new and exciting as opposed to being scared of it and worried about it. Totally. Oh, that's awesome. And so can you just help us fill in the gaps a little bit? So from that trip when you were four years old, what did your upbringing look like? And how did you end up living in 11 countries? And what got you started on this travel path? So my parents are fairly progressive people, I would say, as you can imagine, uh, having, I mean, being Bangladeshi and traveling in itself is quite a big thing. And then especially travel, traveling and making sure that your child travels as much as something else. My mom works for the UN and my dad uh, has been a Well, I mean, he works, he has his own business, but he's been extremely supportive of my mom's work as well. So I grew up not only seeing a very empowered woman, but also seeing a man go out of his way to support an empowered woman to be even more empowered almost. So that gave me kind of the foundation to be very much out there. And my father was one of those people or is Touchwood is one of those people he he like constantly like encourages me. He's such a cheerleader. He's like, you can see everything, be everything and, you know, do everything that you want. You're such an, you know, such an amazing person and all that. So um, having parents like that, uh, my mom and I lived in different countries together. Um, we lived in the Netherlands. We lived in the Soto together as well. And then when I was 18, I went to the UK for law school. And from 18 onwards, I never looked back. Uh, I mean, even earlier, actually, I moved to Lesotho with my parents, with my mom, not my parents, um, when I was 16. So from 16 onwards till now, I've lived all over the world. Yeah, this like, And in between, there was one year in the Netherlands as well, like before I turned 16. So in total, I've lived for 17 years in different countries and with parents who have only encouraged that I travel the world and see as much as possible and experience as much as possible. That's absolutely incredible. And is that typical for Bangladeshi parents to be that open and supportive with travels and whatnot? Not at all. Not at all. Actually, I completely lucked out. And I think I keep telling people this. um, I I mean, I did an interview for a Bangladeshi TV channel when I was there last. And they were like, this is amazing. I'm like, I'm the... 
I'm the proof of what happens when you empower your girls, when you let them travel, when you let them do things. They go to half the world. Like there's a few thousand people in the whole world who's been in the Centurion, who are in the Centurion Club. And that too, with one of the worst passports in the world. I mean, once you, if I had like something else, if I had a, a German passport, for example, I would have seen the whole world by now, for sure. That's, wow, that's so cool and such a good point. And I'm so glad you're sharing this. So on that note, having a air quote bad passport, can you talk about what passport privilege means and what difficulties you face having not as strong of a passport? So, I, I mean, I'll talk about passport privilege, but what I want to talk about is passport disadvantage because passport privilege in itself is like, you know, how many countries you can go to when you have a strong, a, a certain passport. So, you know, it's ranked according to how many countries you can go to without applying for a prior visa. Uh, for example, the German one is the second best in the world and you can go to up to 190 countries with it. I know, crazy, right? So why I want to talk about passport advantages, because not only can you not go to a lot of countries with the Malaysia passport, it's ranked the seventh worst this year. It was ninth worst. Now it's slipped even further. Seventh worst. <laughs> Great. Um, so I... Um, not only can we not go to as many countries, we are actually actively held back from traveling. So what that means is like for a lot of countries, uh, we have to apply for, like we have to get letter of invitations to even apply for the visas. We would need pre-approval from the ministry. So some countries that come to mind for that, Armenia, for example, Costa Rica, for uh, I'm going to go to Kyrgyzstan um, in October. I have to get a letter of invitation before I can even apply for the visa. So a lot of countries require that. And then some other places, like, for example, Guatemala and Honduras, where a lot of other countries can go with like a supplementary visa, like a Schengen visa or a U.S. visa. I still need to apply for a separate visa because I'm in one of those blacklisted countries with Syria, Palestine, um, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, which they don't allow us to go even with like, you know, when you have like residency in Europe or US or whatever. So not like there's there's one thing to not have passport privilege, which a lot of people don't have, like majority of the world don't have that. Um, but it's another thing to be even more held back, like given even more obstacles, even more loops to like hoops to jump on. Oops, to jump on? Is that a saying? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, you get what I mean. Yeah. So that's even more like it's it's an actual disadvantage to have this passport. Not only like is it like not, it's not even the norm. Like you've got like, okay, the privilege and then you've got the norm and then we're at an ab absolute disadvantage. Wow. So there's applications. I imagine there's fees associated with these applications as well. Can you speak to that? I mean, there are so many things like, for example, you have to book everything in advance to be able to apply for these visas. And if you don't get the visa, you don't get back money for most of the things. You don't get your bookings back in many cases. You don't get your uh, because it's not always possible to do refundable bookings and you don't get your visa application feedback for the UK, for example, I'm going to have to apply soon again for a uh, multiple entry visa, which is over 400 pounds, 400 and something pounds, like what in God's name? And you have to, you have to put in things like 10 years of travel history for, for Canada. And I don't even remember 10 months. How am I going to put in 10 years of travel history? I travel that much. Like we are all electronic now, but we're still treated like we're some kind of a, I don't even know, like, so, like something to be disgusted by. It's, and that too, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm I'm super privileged. Like I'm living in Germany. I, I have a well enough paying job. I speak English perfectly. I'm very well exposed. And I'm still treated like shit. And I can't even imagine people who go through even worse situations. Like it's just horrifying. Wow. That's, it just feels unfair. And I think 
it's important to be aware of it because you and I had talked about this. I mean, I have an American passport. This is not my experience. And it's important to hear about those experiences of other people who still you're doing it. It's amazing. But when you are traveling to all these places, when you are going through these application processes, how do you keep what motivates you? How do you push through? How do you get through all that red tape and continue to go on about your travels? You know, I, someone else asked me this and really the only thing I can think about is the fact that my, my, you know, ancestors did not go through famines, genocide, ethnic cleansing and colonization and lose so much in their lives just for me to give up. They didn't. I mean, the the women and the people, but like I always talk about the women who sacrificed everything for me to be as empowered as I am and to be able to do all the things that I can do. I think I owe it to them as well, not just to myself, to be able to like make the most out of it, to make the most of the situation and also for the generations to come to pave the way. I did not have a role model growing up. I want to be the role model for those young girls who want to travel when I looked for people who looked like me, who had my problems when they were traveling, I didn't find one. And that's why I started writing this blog and I started this Instagram page because I wanted to plaster social media with people who look like me, people who are not the picture perfect, I don't know, bikini clad, skinny white girl on a beach, you know, living the best life, people who were vulnerable, who talked about having these issues and having other issues. Like, you know, we spoke briefly about my time in Cape Verde and and how I was put in immigration jail and how that completely broke me down, you know. And to this day, I still fe- fear like going to a new place for the first time the night before I will be full of anxiety because I'm always scared, you know, but if not me, then who, you know, I can't wait for other people to do it. That's an incredible attitude. And so can we actually talk a little bit more about this? So just because you're granted a visa doesn't mean you're going to have easy entry into the country. No. Do you mind sharing that story or another one of troubles you face upon entering a country? So I was supposed to go to, well, I went to Cape Verde in 2019. I arrived from Senegal and I had everything. My, I had a, you can, it's an e-visa for us, or I mean, that's what they say. Never trust this. I know plenty of Bangladeshis who've been refused, plenty of people from all over the world who've not just been refused, treated terribly and sent back, deported. Um, So and e-visas uh i got the e-visa i got the landing permit i had flights in and out of the country flights within the country i had my accommodation booked i had health insurance every single thing you can think of right nobody thinks that much when they are european or american or traveling right no everything booked for i arrived there and then i waited they looked at my passport then they took me to a corner then they said they did not believe that my passport was real. They did not believe any of my paperwork, any of my visas were real. I'm like, first of all, you can scan these things nowadays. This is not, this is 2019. This is not like, I don't know, 2000 or even 90s. You can scan and find everything. Second of all, who would freaking fake a Bangladeshi passport? Like, I am sorry. It's worth toilet paper at that point. Come on. Anyway, so I took, I, they like then questioned me. I answered everything because I had everything. I showed them my bank balance. I'm like, look, I have money. I have everything sorted. I have a job. I have, you know, all the stuff. They didn't believe me and they wanted to deport me to Senegal. Now I was like, you please don't deport me to Senegal because I only had a multiple, a single entry visa for Senegal. So I will get stuck there again. And before that, I was in Gambia. So what are they going to do? Like bounce me back until I'm back in Sierra Leone where I was living. I was like, I have a flight to Germany. Let me catch this flight. I have the visa for it. No one cares. No one one gives a shit. And they are like, we're locking you up and we're sending you away tomorrow. I'm like, where are you sending me? They're like, we're sending you to Senegal. I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? So I messaged my mom and told her what happened. Uh, before they confiscated all our things then they locked me in in this room and um, 
this room has no windows, nothing. They There's no drinking water. There's no food that they give us at this point. Uh, we're just supposed to go to sleep. And there are these bunk beds and there are like walls with scribbles on them where people who have been locked there have written horrifying messages in various different languages that this is no country for the black man. This is no country for X, Y, and Z, like people who were obviously horrified at what was. And I was locked in and next door to me were these three guys, two guys from Liberia, one guy from Nigeria. Mind you, these are all people from the ECOWAS region. So they had free movement in Cape Verde. That means that they were being illegally locked in, but they, this is the thing, it was completely legal for them to do what they were doing to these people because they had free movement, they could come in and out of Cape Verde as they like. Anyway, they basically then put, uh, put me in, locked me in, and then the door, the next door people, one of the guides was claustrophobic and I thought he would break the door down because I could hear him slamming in. And I'm like, I don't know what would happen to me if... The door was locked and uh, the door was broken in and those guys could yeah come through eventually they opened the door and they finally told me that you'd be allowed in because my mom who works for the un got in touch with the un there and then they got in touch and sent all my documents that they had my parents already had uh to them and then they let me in and they lied to the ministry saying that, oh, no, she didn't have, she doesn't have return tickets, she doesn't have this and this and this. So complete racial profiling, nothing else. And nothing mattered to her at that point. It, none of the, all my privileges that I had, you know, that I, I, I realized how fragile this concept is, is because it didn't matter to her that I spoke five languages, didn't matter to her that I had three degrees, didn't matter to her that I'd been to 80 something countries at that point, nothing mattered to her. All that mattered to her was that you are a brown woman from Bangladesh and I'm not going to let you in my country because you are illegal, even if I wasn't. So, yeah. That's horrifying because you're being treated like a criminal for being who you are, which is unfathomable. And, and it's such a frequent reality for people of color that we are so tired. And the woman who did this to me, you know, she was a woman of color. So Cape Verde, all these people who, who spoke to me, they were all people of color. And this is what blew my mind that how can you be like this to us? Like, how can you treat each other like this? And that's when you realize that, your the whole construct of white supremacy is so terrifying that it makes you turn on each other to appease to the superior power and in in the process you lose your humanity it's horrifying it really is wow well thank you for sharing that i know that's not easy to relive and i appreciate you talking about that with us and so I know on your social media, you talk a lot about decolonizing travel. Can you tell us what that means? What I mean by that is to decolonize structures, to decolonize, like, there are different steps to it. The first bit is to decolonize structures. Modern day travel, as we see it, is extremely neocolonial, so including things like passport privilege, which are afforded to mostly those with imperial imperial and colonial pasts. These are countries that have like pillaged our countries and our homelands for centuries and taken everything from it. And now they sit benefiting from all of those things, including like these constructs of superiority. Um, we have to decolonize travel media as well. I mean, the idea of what a tourist looks like when I was growing up and even for a long part of my life has been white people. And if you think of adventure tourists, you immediately think of Germans hiking. You immediately think, I mean, tell me what you, it's, it's, it's true. And I, I think it's important to decolonize those mindsets because there are all these and now there are groups that are popping up in social media as well where you've got people of color who are being represented a bit more 
but it's also important not to just sell the narratives of like not to use people of color as tokens because uh, often enough people talk about like giving space to people of color but then they give space to only western people of color whose struggles are completely different to ours i mean we all struggle from racism but passport privilege is a huge part of this and a huge part of the hurdle we have to get through so that and also making travel more accessible i mean Visas are one thing, but also how expensive travel is for people in certain countries is something we need to think about. Finally, it's about being more ethical when it comes to traveling and leaving the place better than we found it. Like it's really, really horrifying when you see a lot of what um, Western tourists do when they go to a lot of countries, like they do all of this horrifying social media posts about like with white saviorism in like volunteer uh, volunteering in spaces in like Asia, for example, in orphanages and, and doing things that they would never, ever be able to do in their own countries. Um, just that lack, the complete disregard for human rights and the complete disregard for decency when they're abroad. It's as if nothing applies to them and that they're completely untouchable. And to some ex to a great extent, they are. Their countries are probably going to, I don't know, like um, get them out of a lot of crap that they will get themselves into wherever they go. And then I, I'm sure you know about this phenomena that was going on and probably still is the beg pecker, beg peckers from Southeast Asia. I saw a lot of white folks in the late 2010s who would like sit in streets of Thailand and stuff and try and sell pieces of postcards or art or whatever so that they could keep traveling. Thank you. Like, okay, so... I, I don't know if you can't even call it a pet peeve. Like that single type of behavior is what set my passion off for this topic. I'm like, it made me reevaluate everything that I'm doing because I'm seeing other travelers literally on the streets in countries that aren't theirs asking for money when there are other people who live there who are like working hard, that is their job. They are taking away money from the people who live there who need it. So there's a lot. Of it. There's been, a lot. Of I've been there. enraged. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's no, what I, that's how I feel every yeah, day. <laughs> no, I totally understand. And like, it's funny that you mentioned that specific thing because like that for me was the tipping point that I'm recognizing this. And then I'm like bewildered that other people aren't equally upset. <laughs> so Agreed. let's, I want to streamline this conversation. So you mentioned a lot of really important pieces there. We won't get into all of them, but some of them I do want to talk about, especially from this whole white saviorism perspective, this whole, I call it tourists behaving badly. Like, are you, could you pinpoint, do you think there is, an essence of like people intentionally going out of their way, being like rules don't apply to me because of where I'm from, my background versus like, I'm actually just a dumb tourist. I don't know better. Like what behaviors, if we could categorize it, do you recognize in what tourists are doing abroad? If that makes sense. No, yes, I can. But I mean, I think the crucial difference here is how I would act, for example, in in Britain compared to how Brits would act in Bangladesh or mm -hmm. in India. Um, so I won't talk about Bangladesh because Bangladesh is uh, not a country where you can drink, but how Brits abroad, like Brits are abroad, the sense of entitlement to be drunk and destructive and to be like, well, nothing really applies to me compared to how I am when I'm in Britain, because I have to be careful that they don't kick me out of the country. They don't ban my passport. They don't blacklist me and making other countries by virtue of that blacklist me. So it's not just entitlement. Like I, I think there is a sense of entitlement that a lot of people feel like when they go to certain countries, when they're because they're white, they're treated differently. And a lot of countries, for example, in Asia have a huge hospitality culture. So we're very hospitable people and we're nice and kind to people. Um, and, you know, 
they'll get away with doing a lot of things if they give the people a bit of money or a slap with a slap on the wrist. Whereas when I am in these countries, I have to be careful that I don't even run a red light when I'm like, I don't even cross the road when there's a red light, because otherwise I'm going to be put in such a difficult like place. So the when we're talking about the scales, they're just tipped so far in their advantage that I think it's not just it's not dumb because you clearly know you can't get away with some of these things in your country, but it is to an to a level so drunk on privilege that you just don't know better, I guess, almost. Yes. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that in a very clear way. And then I guess what I'm thinking in terms of things like voluntourism, that could come from a place of simply not knowing. Can you talk more about the harms around that kind of tourism? I have a really, uh, I have, a, I have a really favorite comedian. He's called Vidura. He's a Sri Lankan guy, and he, I saw him perform recently in Berlin, and he says this thing that I think is perfect. He's this big brown man with big hair and all that, and he says that, you know, whenever I tell people I'm from Sri Lanka, you know, there are different types of people, and some of them would be like, oh, I went there, and I volunteered, and I went to, look, here are pictures of me with these orphans and blah, blah. And then he's like, great, great, great. But can you imagine me walking into an orphanage in Britain looking like this and just taking pictures with children? How would that work out? So just like trying to think if the reverse is possible. And also most of these people who are going into these orphanages, they're going for a day to two days, two weeks, three months, whatever it is. What skill sets are you going with to be able to look after kids? Are you a professional? And I come from the nonprofit sector. So whenever people are like, oh, I need to go and help in this whatever country, blah, 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 to do this. I'm like, no, you don't. What you need to do is give money. So professionals like me who are hired to do these jobs can go and do the jobs. We don't need people like you to come in with zero idea, you're a liability, especially like, for example, if there's an earthquake, like for example, the Nepal earthquakes, if you have different volunteers who are flying in who don't have any experience, you're a liability. You're taking up resources that could go towards a local person who's much more equipped to be able to do the job that they're doing. So I just think this think thinking, I mean, I'm sure it comes from a place, oh, I want to give my time, donate, blah, blah, blah. No, I mean, ask yourself, why is it that I'm going to X country and trying to like donate my time? Why? What do I think I have to offer to them at age 18, 19, 20, whatever it is? Like, what skills am I taking? Am I actually volunteering in, in a place with the skill set that they need? Am I volunteering skill sets that would be of use or that is not locally available in the same quality? That's not usually the case. Totally. I agree with that so much. And so one thing you mentioned was that we need to be traveling to these places with the intention of not leaving it worse than when we the way we found it, leaving it better. So I know there's no one size fits all solution, but do you have any recommendations as to how travelers can do that? I mean, I think when we go to places, we want to see how we can not inflate the prices there more for others. I mean, it's good. We always inject money as tourists into countries, but I think I am finding it more and more difficult with um, how digital nomads are working these days and I find it difficult more so because um, you're going into places you're inflating the cost of living there and you're I mean if I take for example I mean this is completely different okay mind you completely different from other places but like I live in Berlin Berlin has a huge housing crisis okay I work live and work here so I'm paid according to German standards according to Berlin standards there's a lot of North Americans who move here because it's hip, cool, chic, and they get paid Silicon Valley salaries or U.S. salaries, and they're living here. So the cost of housing has gone gone up exponentially. And this is just in Berlin, which is like mm -hmm. the capital of Europe's biggest economy or one of, you know, Europe's biggest economies. So you can imagine how much worse it gets for places like in Bali, 
Indonesia in general or Thailand or wherever else that digital nomads go and flock. I feel like we have to be careful about what we're doing and what we are offering and how we're able to do this more sustainably. I have not come up with a model that I can share with you, to be honest, but I think like being a little bit more conscious of how we're working and where we're working. Are we actually paying taxes in those countries? Because we're earning shit ton of money. And if we are earning money with the idea of, oh, I pay taxes in the country that I'm earning in and that's it. And that's the only country that benefits takes away the point that you are benefiting from living in this country because it's so much cheap, the weather's so much nicer or whatever it is, like whichever country you're choosing. So how can you make sure that you are actually contributing to the country without while being sustainable so when you are leaving eventually because you're a digital nomad and you will you don't like leave a vacuum there Mm -hmm. and what you've done is sustainable the other thing is also when you're in like respect the places so the usual don't litter don't do things you're not supposed to do follow all the rules that you would have to do in your own countries even if there aren't fines respect the locals like this is something I cannot say enough I've I've seen people be so disrespectful towards locals and countries it's horrifying and finally really like this is like the bare minimum don't be sexist (laughs) like it's just it's really the bare minimum but the way I've seen white men treat Asian women time and again and how they de-demasculate or emasculate and dehumanize and desexualize Asian men at the same time it's just oh these are thank you for bringing up all these points so uh, you and I had talked previously like I was living in Mexico I'm not innocent in all of this I think it's important to say that I'm not having you on here to be and I'm like oh no I'm like the perfect traveler I do everything right no but like I think it's so important to talk about and like one change Or one thing that I saw a lot, especially in Mexico, is people from the United States and Canada bragging about how cheap it is to live in Mexico. And I don't think that does anyone any favors because to your point, like by telling everyone how cheap it is and how more people should come here, like, oh, you can afford so much more there, but doesn't mean you should. Just because Mm. you can doesn't mean you should. It's because it makes it unaffordable for the local people. And so for me, that was a change of language. Yes, things are cheaper in Mexico than in the United States. That is a fact. But being like, you need to come here because it is so cheap and rent is so cheap and all food is so cheap, like it's sending the wrong message. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I I would like to know more about your experience there, actually. Did you see a lot of interesting people? Absolutely. Like it's the best. And I'm not talking about like, the like peninsula Mexico I, I was from, say, yeah like I didn't not a resort so person I like the mainland Mexico I personally spent almost two years in Oaxaca, I um, love Oaxaca. the best like I miss it so much and I do know that it's become more popular I imagine it's changed a lot I haven't been back in over a year but I loved it so much. And so that's the other thing too. That's like something I personally grapple with. I'm like, I had the best experience there and now more people are going and now it's not going to be the same as I remember it. Like poor me, but not poor me. (laughs) Like the people who live there are experiencing the hardships of that. And so that's something like personally that I'm like, I don't know how to navigate this as a traveler. I just, I don't. So I don't know if you have any advice or any experience as to how to still travel while nav like while navigating I don't even know what to call it. I mean it's be- guilt, really. Yeah, it is. But to be honest, if you are going to rely on guilt, you shouldn't travel at all. Because I mean, it first of all, our planet is dying. Maybe we shouldn't fly. Second of all, there's just so many other things that like travel causes that's just horrifying right on so many levels so uh, I think instead of dabbling in the guilt and letting that consume you see how you can do it in the best way possible how can it be more sustainable how can you in like live in a way that you contribute most to the community so that it's not just a take 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 situation but it's also a give because otherwise it becomes modern day colonization and digital 
what digital nomads are doing is modern day colonization. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's true because you like you're taking all the resources, all the cheapness of being in these countries, all the beautiful things that they have to offer, but you're also like not contributing to the taxes in those countries. You're not contributing, like you're injecting money in a very unsustainable manner into the economy, right? Where Whereas you're taking away housing that would have been affordable for people who were earning local uh, locally before to inflating it to, to you know fit these people so i think instead of thinking i think it's important to think and i'm really grateful even for the conversation we had before where you were like i don't know what to do because i did these things and so on and i'm like yeah but it's nobody's perfect like do you think i got to this level by being like woke when i was born <laughs> no i really messed up i was not aware of my privileges for so long you have no idea like i was like not yeah anyway I just completely overlooked the fact that I come from a wealthy enough background to have been educated abroad that I speak languages so well or that I do this and that and this or that I've even traveled half the world that's like privileged AF but I just think it's important to be self-aware to challenge your perspective constantly and to see how you can travel in the most sustainable way not necessarily the cheapest way but the most sustainable way that's super valuable information. And that's like the conclusion that I sort of drew myself. I would ask myself on a regular basis. I'm like, what can I do to at least like try to make a positive impact for a long time? I didn't know the answer. And like, I don't think there is like one answer or anything like that. But the decision that I personally made when living in Oaxaca is like, I'm going to go pick up trash. So every day I just filled one bag of trash from the side of the road. And I'm like, what if more people did this? And it was really interesting, actually, because it was a cool way to integrate into the community because people thought I was insane. Local people coming up to me like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And I'm just like, I'm spending a lot of time here, so I want to contribute. And that was basically what it came down to. And it was cool. And I'm not like sharing this because like I want accolades or anything. It's just it's just something that I did it, yeah. because I, I don't want to leave places worse than when I got there. That's absolutely amazing. It's it's the small ways that you can. And like, you know, if there are like some countries, I guess when they give you a digital nomad visa, there is a tax requirement. But I don't know um, if that's the case for Mexico. I have no idea. Actually, I've never applied for a digital nomad uh, visa before. Yeah, for me, like I became... A temporary resident so there are ways like that's another thing you will find a lot of people in Mexico not going about visa requirements in the most legal way mm -hmm. and things like that are visa runs so instead of leaving the country when you're supposed to you leave for a day and then come back and get your visa reset and again yeah. it's it doesn't always work out and it like it's a privilege to be able to do that because I think some people get caught in precarious situations when doing things like that, just based on a variety of factors. Mm. Yeah, no, fair enough. But yeah, that's one of the things that I think would be important. I think it's very important that if you are going to be a digital nomad, that you pay taxes or you pay into the country somehow, like, I don't know, however way. Mm -hmm. And then just like a couple other tidbits, like I think just to give some sort of tangible action, like one other thing I learned while in Mexico that I didn't even consider is when looking for housing, a lot of people would flock to the Facebook groups and things like that. Don't list your budget because that's when people can start to take advantage of what you're willing to pay and do your research, learn local rates and pay accordingly. And it benefits yeah. everybody actually. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You're not hiking up the prices. And yeah, that was like a mind blown moment for me. I'm like, Oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> so it's like these little things like share the knowledge. <laughs> we should write an article on this. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So you share a lot about your travels and things online. What is some of the most inspiring feedback you've received to the content you've created? I have met people who've DM me whenever I was in um, their countries to tell me how my content made them step out of their shell and solo travel. And I don't know, like, 
so, sometimes when you have those moments when you when people say to you that I I'm sorry I, I really like like I, I did this because I saw you do it and it encouraged me to do it it makes all the hate that you get on the other end worth it somehow if I could like it's it's amazing I, I yeah That's I've awesome. heard a few women say that to me and that that's always been really, really great. And then I've had a few other women who say to me that they really like the more, the stuff that I've written about decolonization or the stuff that I've shared about decolonization, because it's stuff that people think about in abstract, but never think of, never realize to put it down on paper or on, on a reel. And then they're like, oh my God, this actually makes sense. I think that's how you came across my profile. Awesome. And so you definitely inspire people, but that's not without some challenges online. What has been some of the challenging parts and the negative feedback you've received since sharing your life online? Being a woman of color, particularly a Muslim woman of color from a fairly conservative conservative country, um, people have a lot to say about everything that I do. Somehow a lot of people like to interpret the religion to be like to be a patriarchal shithole that they interpret it as because they are, you know, misogynists. So, um, uh, you know, people saying things like, oh, you're, you shouldn't be wearing this. You shouldn't have tattoos. You shouldn't drink. You shouldn't blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you shouldn't be on my profile if you're offended <laughs> by me. Like, dude, don't follow me. I'm sorry, like, why are you on my profile if everything I do offends you so much? Like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm not asking you to follow me. Right, exactly. There's a button you, and you can leave without saying anything. So like, if I'm so offensive to you, I don't know why you're on this. And then like, there's been quite a few things as well, like death threats, rape threats, the usual that most women, I mean, I know it's, I know I'm saying this like fully with like a, but like, you know, uh, and then um, this happened to me, which was really terrifying. And I think, of, I think I was off. So basically when I moved to Berlin, I was on the dating apps, but I would never put my socials on them because it's dangerous. You can track people. But then people still found my socials and people who I didn't match with. And then they would message me and tell me everything that they knew about me, which is everything because I'm a public figure. So you can find things online. They're like, oh, I love that you work here and you do this and you do that and that you traveled here and been there. And then I'm like, oh, my God that's terrifying it's so scary it's so freaking scary and you know in Germany um in the doors in like you put your name on the door so it's not like you know just flat one two three four your name is on the door so I'm always scared that someone's gonna find out where I live like actually live and show up so yeah a few scary things that is that is scary. <laughs> but so far, no one's shown up at your door, right? Not that I know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and this is just like a good topic in general, especially traveling as a solo female. It's important to keep some things private, especially like for me, like I don't real time post when I'm traveling alone, just and so people don't know where I actually am in that moment. I delay everything. So I don't know if you do the same. Um, I don't. I uh, I mean, the posts usually after I've often after I've left the city, but the stories are in real time because often enough someone will be like, oh, I, I live here. Can I show you X thing? So when I went to Budapest, one of my really lovely followers messaged me. She's like, I live here and I know you have all these things planned, but if you have time, I would love to take you to a cafe. And she was so great. And it was so nice to meet her. And I've done this spontaneously in different places too, where people are like, oh my God, I'm in the city. I mean, equally you get weird men who are like, hey, can I take you out? I'm like, no, what the hell? <laughs> but like, it's, it's worth it to see the women who are like, oh, I really love what you're doing. And it's, yeah. That's I'm awesome. Great. Very cool. Oh, I'm so thankful for you being here and sharing everything. I could actually talk to you all day, but I won't. Um, 
Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course. So to wrap up, what advice do you have someone for someone who's eager, eager to travel more, but they believe maybe their circumstances don't allow for it, or there's just something that's holding them back? There's always going to be something that is holding you back. And to be honest, I could tell you, I could give you um, a piece of like, I don't know, feel good pop psychology, I don't know, advice, but um in the reality is if there are things that are holding you back like there where are for me as well um it's not easy but you have to work on it and i mean i i don't believe in this concept of if you work hard enough you get there because i think you're still dealt a certain hand in life and um like uh you know, even if I don't have passport privilege or race or gender or religion or whatever privilege, I still have wealth privilege and I still have uh, other privileges, you know. Um, I just think, though, that it, there are ways around a lot of things. So um, if you keep your eye on the prize, it's possible. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy and I'm not going to say it's going to be, I don't know, achievable in the near future, but it, it can be mm -hmm. if you work enough and keep your eye on the prize. Awesome. Thank you for that very realistic closing remark. And if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you online? Uh, they can find me on Instagram uh, at Maliha Around the World or on my blog. Uh, www.malihaaroundtheworld.com it's maliha around the world instead of maliha around the world okay just, uh, perfect and i'm linking it in the show notes so people will just be able to click on it all right maliha thank you so much for being here thank you for all your wisdom and insight on such an important topic i'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about it together and i'm so excited to have this topic on my podcast as well Thank you so much for reaching out to me and being patient with me. I'm sorry I was not available earlier, but it was really wonderful to speak to you. Uh, I feel like next time, though, when we talk, maybe I can hear more about you because I Absolutely. feel like the entire show. Well, yes. that's what the podcast interview is. <laughs> fair, fair but thank you for asking these amazing questions and putting these perspectives out there. And I really look forward to staying in touch with you. Amazing. Thank you. And everyone else, I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Travel Possibilities podcast. If you liked what you heard, I would be so thankful for your positive review on Apple Podcasts so I can keep the episodes coming. If you aren't already following me on social media, Come soak up the extra tips and travel inspiration on Instagram by following me at The Travel Shifters or by visiting my website at travelshifters.com. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to connect with you in the next episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it.